You're listening to Understanding the Law Radio, your business success and legal information station. Hi, and thanks for joining me for another episode of Understanding the Law Radio. I'm your host, Peter Lamont, and today is Friday, and that means it is the week in review. So on this show, we take a look at all of the important and or kind of um, outside the mainstream, if you will, legal and business stories, and we talk about them. Uh, We talk about the stories and we discuss what it means, and we talk a little bit about the spin that they put on some of these stories in the news, uh, and, and we relate how some of these stories might affect you in your personal life or in your business life. So let's get started. Before I do, please just remember to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so already and review us over on iTunes. It helps us. It helps the podcast progress and it lets other people know about the show. So please make sure you do that. All right. So the first story we're going to talk about today involves Tootsie Roll, you know, the candy, the little wrapped up chocolate-ish kind of chewy Tootsie Roll. Now, I read this story, and it's very brief, uh, but it was in a popular online news digest, and here's what it says. It says, a federal judge refused to dismiss a class action against Tootsie Roll over the 44% slack fill that characterizes its Junior Mints candy boxes, quote, a rather substantial amount by any measure, closed quote. Now, first of all, let's talk about this. So Junior Mints, who doesn't love Junior Mints? Jimmy Buffett loves Junior Mints. I love Junior Mints. When you go to the movies, what do you want? Junior Mints. The only thing about Junior Mints is when they they get stuck together in the box and then you go in there to grab them and then your hand's all sticky. That's, that's, That's gross. But what this lawsuit is about is the fact that the box of Junior Mints is larger than the amount of junior mints that are in the box and somebody filed a class action. I'll get into the details in a second saying that they were deceived that the Tootsie Roll company committed fraud because their box is only 44% full. Now that's, that's deceptive, but I have two problems. First problem is this case But the second problem is the way that this story was reported. It says a federal judge refused to dismiss a class action. Now, that's not exactly what happens. So the name of this case is Page Stem versus Tootsie Roll Industries, Inc. And this is a case out of the uh, Northern District of Illinois. It's a federal court case. And there is a rather substantial 13-page decision by the judge. What the judge has done here is grant the motion by Tootsie Roll to dismiss the complaint, but failed to theoretically dismiss it as a class class action, but it's not what the news story says. The news story seems to suggest that there is an ongoing class action against Tootsie Roll, and it seems to suggest that 
the allegation of the 44% slack full fill is is legit. Well, but that's not what happened. What happened is Tootsie Roll filed a motion to dismiss on the grounds that there's no cause of action that could be uh, reasonably articulated by the plaintiff. And in particular, they talk about some of the allegations. So going through this memorandum, we see consumer deception, which is essentially consumer fraud. Uh, they just call it deception in Illinois. We've got general fraud and um, then some violations of federal law because, believe it or not, there are regulations concerning um, how much space, empty space, can be in a box of food product uh, compared to, you know, or, or when you sell it. Um, so there's there's rules about that. But what happened here is Tootsie Roll files this motion to dismiss, and they say, Judge, the plaintiff has failed to state a cause of action. Now, a motion to dismiss sounds like it is a dismissal, like, you know, I mean, what else does it sound like, right? Dismiss. But this is how convoluted the law is. A motion to dismiss does not necessarily dismiss forever the case. A summary judgment motion might. And in limited circumstances, maybe a motion to dismiss will actually dismiss the case permanently. But that's not the case here. Here, the motion to dismiss said that the plaintiff did not reasonably articulate the cause of action, that they didn't establish the cause of action in their complaint, and therefore the complaint must be dismissed. Now, a class action starts off as a class action by name, but it doesn't become a class simply because you file a class action complaint. It takes a process and a certification process after discovery before a court is going to establish class action status for a case. So yeah, very scary. They use the words class action in this complaint. Bottom line here is that the court did in fact say, hey, Tootsie Roll, you're right. We looked at this complaint and we can't see what the plaintiff's causes of action are. Now, I don't mean that they don't understand it because they understand that they're saying consumer deception or, or whatnot. What they didn't do is they didn't properly set forth the allegations in the complaint. And it's partially uh, a technical issue that they just didn't establish the causes of action properly. And the judge dismissed the complaint. So what does that mean? Is the case over? Can you continue to sell junior mints when there's only 44% of the box filled? We don't know because what the judge did is say it's dismissed without prejudice. Now, what does that mean? Well, if it's dismissed with prejudice, then you can never file that action again. The causes of action that are part of your complaint are dismissed permanently so that you're done. If it is dismissed without prejudice, then you have the ability to go back to your office and work up a complaint that makes sense, right? That um, establishes all of the elements. That's what you need to do. Now you can go back, you refile that amended complaint, 
And if you still aren't able to establish facts because some of the causes of action like fraud require a certain pleading style, you have to plead with specificity, meaning that you've got to allege specific facts that when looked at on their face, right? They're not, the court's not looking at the merits of the case at this point. They're just looking at the facts as you plead them. Do those facts support a, a case they'll either dismiss it again or they'll allow it to continue. So this article uh, about Tootsie Roll essentially losing, the judge refusing to dismiss the class, that's not true. He didn't dismiss the entire case, but he did dismiss the plaintiff's complaint and the plaintiff is going to refile and we're going to see what happens. So it's interesting. Um, I personally don't like these cases because... Here's here's my take on this. This guy, this girl, I don't know who this is. Let's see, Paige Stem. Let's assume it's a it's a it's a female. Buys a box of Junior Mints. You know, if you've ever bought Junior Mints before, how many Junior Mints are in the box? I mean, I find it hard to believe that you're going to pick up a box of Junior Mints and be deceived by the amount of Junior Mints that are in the box. It seems like one of these cases where, oh, let me just try to get some money. You know, and that's frustrating because, again, you're looking at uh, part of the legal legal industry where people grow to hate lawyers because who makes money off of these class actions? Well, I'll tell you, it's the lawyers the, the class representative or the members of the class, they get a nominal amount. Sometimes in a class action where it's impractical for the defendant to pay out, they offer things like coupons. Have you ever received a coupon in the mail, maybe like a, a notice that says, hey, you purchased something from Sears between this date and this date, and here's a $5 coupon, Right. I think at some point we've all received that in the mail and you you don't know what, what it is. And more often than not, you never use the coupon anyway. That's what typically happens. So you as a class member, you get crap and you know who gets money? The lawyers. So when I see this, it's kind of like, I don't know, it just it's frustrating that someone's going to, to try to sue because of the amount of food, amount of junior mints in the box. I don't get it. I'd like to know what you guys think about this because personally, these types of lawsuits, I just find them to be without merit. I think it's an attempt uh, to, to grab some money and I really, really don't like it. All right. Next story deals with all of those parents, those celebrity parents who were caught, caught in the college admissions scandal. Now, I'm sure you've heard about this, and I'm not going to focus on that because that's mainstream news. You could turn on any channel, look at CNN, and you're going to find that. But suffice it to say, celebrities like uh, Lori Laughlin and, and some other really well-known people are caught in this college admission, admissions scandal where they allegedly paid significant amounts of money um, to individuals who then fraudulently, allegedly, got their kids into college. You know, things like uh, saying that the kid was on the crew team when the kid wasn't on the crew team, all these things. So that that's the, 
the general basis of the scandal that, um, you know, these parents paid off essentially someone to help them either cheat on tests or, or get, you know, their children to school. But that's not the important part of this story. What I think is important here is this article that I read in the Washington Post. Parents caught in the college admissions scandal are turning to this convicted felon for advice on life in prison. So they're referring to a gentleman by the name of Justin Paperny. And from what I've, I've researched, Justin was apparently a stockbroker and he was involved in um, some illegal activity, which ultimately landed him in a federal prison, federal white collar crimes type prison. And he served, I think it was 18 months, came out and started his life over and now is part of this company that coaches people going into prison and gets them prepared for what life is going to be like. He has a few YouTube videos where he's talking about what his first day uh, in the federal prison was like and what uh, to think about, what to focus on, how to behave, um, the practical aspects of it, what happens, what to expect. And in most of his videos, he talks about uh, going to prison as not being the hardest part, but the hardest part is what happens before you go to prison, which is having your name dragged through the mud, the worry, the fear, uh, the impact that it's going to have on your children and your family, and that that the prison aspect of it is uh, the the least scary part. And and he talks all about the benefits, if you will, of prison. He takes a positive position concerning his time and what he's learned. Now, this, if if I recall, I don't have the facts in front of me. This was sometime in the nineties. Um, perhaps early 2000s. This is not recent. He has served his time and been out and um, been serving as a consultant for lawyers and you know I, I, individuals who need assistance preparing themselves for trial. And he's actually working with some of these celebrities who are caught in this college admissions scandal. Now, here's my question. Do you think that what he's doing is good or bad? You know, I, I talked to a few people about this story because I think it's a fascinating story. He's being paid to tell people what it was like in prison. He himself is a convicted felon. So... When I was talking to people, I said, hey, look, what do you think about this? Is this guy someone to look up to? You know, he has admitted his mistakes, he's paid for them, and he's turned his life around. Or is this somebody that shouldn't be in this position? And it's really split. I mean, a lot of people said to me, well, you know what? This is different than a guy that 
used drugs, went to jail and came out and now is educating people on, you know, the dangers of drugs and going to jail. This is somebody that committed fraud or uh, a, th- a theft or uh, it-, it had to do with money, obviously, um, violating SEC rules and things of that nature. Should that person who committed that type of crime now profit from his time in jail? And a lot of these people are saying this doesn't seem fair. So he did something wrong. He went to jail and now he's made a business out of coaching people who are also going to be going to jail for a white collar crime. They don't think it's right. I would say the poll that I conducted is roughly 48 to 50 percent. I don't have the exact numbers, but that's how many people think that this is kind of an unfair thing. Now, on the flip of that, people are like, well, wait a minute. Everyone's entitled to make money. Everyone's entitled to have a career. And this gentleman paid for his mistakes. And, you know, kudos to him because he came out and he built himself back up. And that should be applauded, not something that people should criticize because he was in jail. And I, I don't know. I'm a little torn on this. I I, bo- I understand both arguments and I understand why people would say to themselves, this doesn't seem fair because he is using prison to make a living. And I also understand the reverse. He's providing a service and what is wrong with that? So I, I'd really like to hear from you guys out there what you think about that story. And if you think that it's fair, it's just, it's right for him to uh, you know, be making money like this. I'm going to put a poll up on the Facebook page, but think about this. And, and you know, if you want more information, take a look. I have to say, though, I did watch some of his videos concerning what to expect. And aside from the fact that, you know, look at this as a positive and your life's going to change, I think the information, I don't know, I've never been in jail, but I think the information seems valuable. I mean, I guess, but uh, check it out. It's interesting. All right. Next, we're going to move on to the swoop, Nike. So Nike is hit with another racial discrimination lawsuit. And uh, this one coming out of San Diego It involves a senior director in data analytics at Nike who filed suit against the company this Tuesday, alleging that it racially discriminated against him. And this is according to the Portland Business Journal. In the suit, uh, the third in a wave of recent litigation that this particular, uh, or, or, or Nike has faced, I should say, Uh, alleging discrimination. So there's three active claims against Nike alleging discrimination. In this one in particular, the plaintiff claims that he was denied a promotion in favor of a white executive who had less experience. He further alleges that a white coworker with similar qualifications receives a salary $75,000 higher than his, and that's according to the Portland Business Journal. Uh, In addition to those claims, the former Nike executive who joined the firm in in 2016 alleges that the company subjected him to a pattern of hostile and intimidating treatment 
which defer um, which differed markedly from the way that his former superior or supervisor treated the white members of her team. Uh, he claims that essentially it created a hostile work environment. That that's some of the magic language that lawyers write pattern of hostile and intimidating treatment. That's to show discrimination and the the creation or existence of a hostile work environment. Now, the plaintiff in this case is from India, uh, and he claims that the treatment that he experienced while at Nike caused him, of course, severe physical and mental health issues, including symptoms of anxiety, including but not limited to agitation, depression, lack of hope, uh, psychosomatic anxiety, related muscle and joint pains, panic attacks, sleeplessness, nightmares, headaches, nausea, persistent cold, etc., etc. Now, look, when you are involved in one of these lawsuits, I used to defend a lot of employment discrimination claims when I used to do work for insurance companies. And there are some that are legit. That, you know, you, you look at these claims and you say to yourself, man, this insurance company that I'm representing, uh, how is it that they allowed, or how is it that they're insured, the company, allowed this behavior to go on? There are some that are egregious, where employees actually are discriminated against, and it's disgusting, and it shouldn't happen. But over the course of, I guess, my time representing those types of claims, I've got to say that a good 75 to 80% of them were trumped up, some of it by the client, uh, some of it by the attorney. And people would allege all kinds of damages. I haven't been able to sleep for, for weeks at a time. I'm depressed. I'm this, I'm that. And you find out through the medical history that they either already had symptoms of depression prior to taking this job or None of it's documented. So when I see personally a laundry list of damages like this, it, it's, it makes me start to, to wonder, especially I love the psychosomatic claims here. Um, so, you know, you got to take it, I think, with a grain of salt when you read these stories. You've got you to really delve deep. And that's what I, I hope that I'm doing here on um, – you know, the week in review, that I'm, I'm trying to cut through a lot of the commercial nonsense, which is what the headlines say, and show you that the law is not always black and white, and neither are the headlines, because they're not always accurate. Now, in this case that I'm talking about, the plaintiff is seeking $516,000 in economic damages. Now, that really is salary-related, okay, over years, and $350,000 in non-economic damages and attorney's fees. Now, the $350,000 is for pain and suffering, perhaps punitive damages, and then the rest of the claim is a calculation, essentially, of what he has lost in wages and earnings. But before he can even get to that damages analysis, he's got to be able to establish liability and show that Nike did in fact discriminate against him on the basis of his race, because that's what this case is. It's a race discrimination case. But you've got to get over that hurdle first. You could have all the damages in the world, but if you can't prove liability, your case is going to fail. 
Now, it's tough. Those are tough cases, these employment discrimination cases. You, you've got to be able to show more than just that your boss didn't give you a promotion or that your boss didn't like you. It, it, you've got to be able to establish the elements of discrimination, which is why it's alleged, as, as I mentioned before, systematic and um, you know deliberate and that, that sort of verbiage uh, to suggest that this is egregious conduct, that it is outlandish and more than your boss not liking you. Because quite frankly, for those of you who think that you can sue for discrimination or hostile work environment simply because your boss isn't friendly to you, you can't. And, and again, going back to when I represented those claims, there were so many people who would come in and they'd find a lawyer to take a case where they were essentially saying, my boss doesn't like me and he's mean to me and I want to sue. There's no grounds for that. And those cases get dismissed. Now, Nike is facing three of these. So at some point, right, do you say to yourself, huh, there are three of them? Maybe I don't believe this one. But what about the second and the third and, you know, on and on? So you start to wonder, is it true? Is it not true? And the flip of that is, well, it's bandwagoners. Hey, I worked for Nike and I see that Jane filed a lawsuit for discrimination. I think I can do that too. And this is why it's so difficult to be able to make a judgment call on some of these things. We read them in the newspaper and the way they're written and the way that they're laid out, it seems very clear, but as a lawyer, I can tell you that they're not. So we'll see what happens with Nike. All right, moving along, another employment issue, but this one, this one's very interesting and I I'm you know, I think this is a good one to talk about because I've seen this issue come up recently. Tesla sues a former employee for allegedly stealing data. And and in particular, it is autopilot source code. So this is interesting because this happens more often than not. And I think that this is something you should be familiar with. So there's this particular engineer who copied, allegedly, more than 300,000 files related to autopilot source code as he prepared to join a Chinese company from Tesla. Now, a lawsuit was filed against the employee, um, and it's in its very, very early stages. What can we take away from this story? Well, I have seen so many employees, especially independent contractors, go in and work for a company and then try to steal their data, customers, client information um, simply because they worked with it. And what they fail to realize is that it's not theirs to take. Now, clearly, if this lawsuit determines that the employee actually did steal these files and this source code, well, that stuff belongs to Tesla, and that is going to result in definitely civil liability and fines and monetary damage, but it could also at some point lead to criminal. If this was 
widespread or, or involved more than one person. But right off the bat, you know, if you're just looking at this as a civil suit, when you steal information from your employer, even if you have created that information, you are going to be held to be civilly liable. So what, what does all this mean? Well, when you work for someone else, the presumption is that the work you're doing is work for hire. And you may have seen that terminology in employment agreements or at-will agreements or independent contractor agreements, you know, where there's a, a paragraph that basically says any work that you perform on behalf of the company is work for hire and therefore owned by the company. So if you're paid as an employee or a consultant, you can't, unless there's something in writing to the contrary, you can't just take their information. You can't take their clients. You can't take their databases. You can't take their source code. You can't take anything because it's not yours. And a few years ago, I had a case where an individual was an independent contractor and he was hired for the purpose of, con well, it was designing this robot mechanism. Let's, let's just call it that. It was a robot mechanism. It was a, an engineering company. And he did so, but then left and wanted to take the technology that he developed for the company and then sell it on his own. And the company, when they found out about this, of course, were up in arms and they said, are you kidding me? This is crazy. And I, I remember this gentleman calling me up and, and saying to me, how can I be wrong? I made this. And I tried to explain to him, did you sign anything? Yes. Oh, you did. Let's see it. Well, what does it say? Oh, look at this. It says right here that whatever you do for this company is the property of the company. And he argued with me and said, no, no, this is my invention. This is my idea. I had been working on this before the company and uh, it's mine and I'm going to sell it. And I said to him, look, if you sell it, you're going to be in a world of hurt because they're going to sue you. It's not yours. It is work for hire. Sure enough, he didn't listen to me. And uh, he called me back about three months after that initial call and said, hey, uh, Peter, uh, you, you were right. Could you help me out? And at that point, you know, knowing that the client's not going to listen because he didn't listen before, it becomes you know, an issue where I, I didn't help this gentleman because, you know, I just could see where it was going to go. But the lesson here to learn is that, A, if you're an employer, make sure that your employees or independent contractors understand this idea of work for hire. And you can do that by making sure it's in your agreements so that you have something to fall back on in the event that something similar to this case happens. If you're an employee, understand that you are not entitled 99.9% .9 of the time to take any of the things that you created on behalf or for your employer when you leave. They are not yours. They are property of the company. They are work made for hire. All right. And finally, everyone loves memes, right? Well, I don't. I don't understand them. My son keeps saying to me, isn't this funny? And I look at this thing with this picture with words on it. I don't get it. It doesn't make any sense to me. And he's like, dad, 
you're out of touch, man. This is like funny. Look at how funny this is. And I'm looking at it and I just don't get it. Now, I do have to say, over the holidays, I did play a meme game. It was like a card game where you've got a picture and then you've got to select the phrases that go with it. And I thought that was kind of funny, but he didn't like that either. He was like, Dad, uh, all the things that you're saying, they're not funny because you would expect them to say that. You know, like if it's a kid crying and I had the option to uh, select, look at this kid crying, that's what I probably would do. So I have failed at memes. I am a meme failure. However, memes are quite popular and they really haven't yet become legal issues until right now. So Jerry Media is facing a federal lawsuit over a text meme. The marketing company uh, and owner of the popular F. Jerry Instagram account um, and their practice of reposting uncredited jokes has now found itself in court. So I would imagine that this is more of a uh, precedent-setting case with respect to memes. They're being sued in New York by someone who created a joke that allegedly made its way into a marketing campaign for a Jerry Media client. Um, The company charged upwards of $25,000 per social post for clients. That's crazy. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine paying a company $25,000 per post for marketing and advertising? I mean, I work with a lot of small businesses that are just startups, and they're always looking to hire someone that has some abilities in social media, you know, and they're thinking $5 a post. Could you imagine $25,000 a post if you're a small business owner? Tough. Well, anyway... Uh, This lawsuit alleges that the joke was stolen um, and that it was essentially uh, similar to or akin to copyright infringement, uh, willful violation of federal copyright law and infringement of his trademark, as well as false advertising, unfair competition, and false designation of origin uh, and the plaintiff here wants to get to obtain an injunction against Jerry Media so that you can't use the meme. And then, of course, unspecified monetary damages, including punitive damages. Now, I understand it's a meme, and I understand that the concept of memes and litigation are, you know, not something that is um, popular. Now, I'm popular, I mean, it really hasn't happened yet. There's not been a lot of cases involving memes. But I think where a court is going to look at this and, and, and rule on it is going to be looking at the traditional elements of copyright law claims and is this infringement. You know, did Jerry Media take whatever this joke was and use it without the permission of the owner, Did they make money from it, which it seems like for $25,000 a post? And, you know, what what is the impact? Um, What did they use it for? And clearly we can can tell you that it was for um, commercial benefit, for monetary benefit. And I think that a court's going to look at it in that light. And forgetting about the fact that it's words on a picture making it a meme, I think they're going to say, all right, let's 
apply traditional copyright law to this current situation. And if, in fact, this is something that does belong to the plaintiff, then there's a good possibility that Jerry Media could be in trouble on this one. But again, we don't know that. We'd have to establish that, A, the plaintiff has the rights to this and that it is his original work and then that there's no exception to the copyright law violations because for for many of you out there, especially you people on uh, YouTube or you know you guys that do podcasts or or whatnot, uh, you're you're fairly familiar with the idea of fair use. And I talked to a YouTuber about two weeks ago who was um, editing in snippets from very popular movies, and they were very very short snippets. Uh, and their argument was, "Hey, it's fair use," and they were surprised to learn that it likely isn't fair use. Um, and you know, we talked about it at length. I am going to be talking about uh, YouTube and media-related content uh, on a YouTube video as well as in a separate podcast. So make sure that you, you know, stay aware of the schedule and and what shows are coming up if you're interested in that, uh, because that was a very interesting discussion, and I have a lot of information that I want to share with you concerning the fair use doctrine. But getting back to this case, um, interesting. I think it's going to hinge on copyright law. And if all of the elements can be proven, then I would imagine that Jerry Media will be enjoined, prevented, in other words, from uh, continuing to use the ad campaign and would likely seek some form of damages. All right, that's going to do it for the week in review. Remember, this is the Friday show where we take a look at some of the recent um, business and legal issues that are a little bit off the beaten path. They're not the same uh, stories that you're going to find on CNN. And I think that it's more interesting to explore some of these lesser known news stories and talk about it because I think there's a lot of information that we can obtain from them, both in in business, in legal matters, and really even in your personal life. You know, like today, for example, we talked about the employment issue with respect to Tesla and taking information. It doesn't matter if you're an employer, an employee, an independent contractor, you can learn something from that story. And that's why I think that the Week in Review is beneficial and that it makes sense not to focus on those mainstream stories all the time because, quite frankly, you hear them enough, you read about them enough, and you don't learn much from them. So that's my two cents on that. All right, that's going to do it. Have a great weekend. We'll be back next week with another week of shows. If you have questions or comments about today's episode, please make sure to reach out to me directly. It's pl at pjle.com. ESQ.com, or you can call us at 201-904-2211. Don't forget to subscribe and to review the podcast on iTunes and make sure you share the information that you hear on the podcast with your family, friends, and colleagues and let them know about utlradio.com, your business success and legal information station. I'll see you next time. Have a great weekend. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Understanding the Law Radio. 
if you'd like more information about the show, or if you'd like to take advantage of our business and legal self-help resources, including our extensive video library, then visit us online at utlradio.com. You can also find us over on Facebook, Twitter, and on YouTube. Now, if you have any questions about any of the topics that you've heard discussed on today's show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic for future shows, please feel free to reach out to me directly at pl at pjlesq.com, or you can call us at 201-904-2211. Please also make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Also, share the information that you receive through this podcast with your family, your friends, and colleagues, and let them know about utlradio.com, your business success and legal information station.